0: Welcome, everybody. You are listening to the Monument Church Podcast, and we hope you enjoy it. And thank you very much, and thank you for your encouragement. And as always, it's an honor to stand before you and share the word, and it's, it's a privilege too. So uh, thank you for that. I'm going to preach on Psalm 22, as you've already heard. And the title of the message is, Walking with God in Crisis and Suffering. So, would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that we can look back to these ancient writings of your people and see how they walked with you, see how they experienced you, and we can learn from them. And Lord, you speak to us through those words, through those scriptures. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that this morning, Lord, that we would hear your voice, your words, because you have the words of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. James Dobson once said, we go through life as if surrounded by a thin membrane and that any minute that membrane can break and tragedy, suffering, crisis can just rush into our life in an instant. I have five brothers, but my next oldest brother is named Tommy, he's 14 months older than me, and he's an avid surfer. But on uh, September of 2018, it was a beautiful day on the Jersey shore. And he heard that there was a hurricane coming up the east coast. And when a surfer hears about a hurricane, they they think of one thing, big waves. And so he grabbed his board with a buddy, and they hit the beach, went out into the water, paddled out about 60 yards or so, and positioned themselves to catch some waves. Tommy saw one coming and decided he's going for it. His buddy didn't take that wave, he just hung back. But the wave uh, was a pretty violent wave, and it pretty much drove him headfirst into the ocean floor, which was really only five or six feet below the surface of the water. He hit the ground so hard that it fractured his skull, which punctured his dura, which is the membrane that uh, encloses the brain. By God's grace he didn't break his neck but it knocked him out and his friend who hung back was waiting to see his head pop up in the white water as he's looking towards shore didn't see him and he's looking around for him and he looks over to his right and sees my brother floating face down in the water and my brother's a joker and so Bob went over to him and pushed him because he thought he was joking and he just sunk so he grabbed him grabbed his lifeless body, and started swimming toward the shore as best he could. It wasn't easy. Uh, Other people saw what was going on. They came out to help. They dragged him ashore, and uh, by God's grace again, there was a doctor and her husband that were sitting on the beach, just enjoying the day. She came running over. She said, turn him on his side. And then she started doing the Heimlich maneuver. Because the first thing that had to be done was all the water had to be expelled out of his lungs in order for him to take any air in because he was not breathing and he was unconscious. Fortunately, water started coming out of his mouth and his, uh, he started actually regurgitating water out of his stomach, which was all a good sign, um, but he was still unconscious. Now, they estimate that he was not breathing for about three minutes. And if any of you know anything about this, and I did not until this happened, but when the brain doesn't receive oxygen, the three-minute point is the real crucial point where permanent brain damage starts to set in. It could be less if you're unhealthy. It could be more if you're healthy. Uh, Fortunately, my brother was healthy. Uh, They called an ambulance. They rushed him to the hospital. They stabilized him, but the hospital near the shore there was not really equipped to handle a drowning victim like this. So they airlifted him to another hospital about 30 miles away. He was still unconscious, and they actually put him in a medically induced coma because they weren't sure of the, the brain damage. He had bleeding on the front and back of his brain, and um, they just wanted to get his, all his other vitals stabilized. And then within a couple of days, they started to bring him out of the coma and just check his responses, check his cognitive abilities and, uh, you know, his responses to commands like moving his fingers and stuff. And every step of the way, there was positive progress. Thank God. Um, So he was in that hospital for about three weeks. And then he was moved to a brain trauma unit uh, to just... um, see, see what, you know, what brain damage he had, if any. And by God's grace, he had no brain damage. He was, um, he was a little groggy, he was learning to talk. Um, the impact damaged some nerves, so the side of his face was uh, not paralyzed, but he had no muscle in the side of his face, lost his hearing, and his equilibrium was damaged, so actually he had to relearn how to walk. And so after three weeks in the brain trauma unit, he went to another uh, physical ther- therapy place for two weeks and learned how to walk and breathe. He couldn't swallow, so he was on a feeding tube actually for seven months where he would just feed himself with a, a bottle of uh, like protein and, um, because it, it affected his, his throat. Now, my brother is a smart guy. He's a, director of a large residential drug rehabilitation unit outside New York City in North Jersey. And he's a pastor, so he, he talks for a living. And there was a question there if he would even be able to talk. So anyway, he continued to progress, praise God, things just got better and better. He was able to come home beginning of September, uh, December he still had nurses visiting, different kinds of therapy and stuff like that. But on Christmas Eve Day, his wife, who had been suffering from liver disease and they knew she had liver problems, had to be rushed to the hospital on Christmas Eve Day. She was in the hospital. Uh, it was determined that she needed a liver and she was put on the list for a liver, but she continued to decline and basically she was taken off that list. As they said if we put a liver in you it's it's not going to help and she died on Mar- in March of 2019 in November of the same year he got a call from California that his middle son 35 years old died of a drug overdose so Tragedy, suffering, crisis. It can come to us at any time. I hope it never comes that intense. But it could be anything. It could be a divorce. It could be just a financial uh, crisis. It could be a a bad marriage. Um, You know, we we stress sometimes over the decisions our adult children make, and they, they keep us awake at night. There's just all kinds of things that just hit us and they cause stress, they cause suffering. Um, and they cause us really to look deep inside. I mean, it's it's at those times where all the superficial stuff that we thought meant something in life just gets cleared out of the way and we look deep in our soul and we ask, you know, we ask questions. It it, it challenges our faith. We uh, you know, we 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 question what we believe, what we've been taught all this time. You know, as believers, the, the big question is this, and I think this uh, trips up a lot of people. You know, if God is good, and I'm a Christian, and why did this happen to me? If God is all-powerful, couldn't He have stopped this? If God is sovereign, did that mean that He caused this or brought this or... You know, allowed this to happen and I just want to cl- um, clear that question out of the way because that's not what this message is about. John Stott, in his book The Cross of Christ, there's a chapter on suffering and he talks about this. The, where does suffering come from? What part does God have to play in tragedy in our lives? And this is what he writes. <clears throat> it needs to be said at once that the Bible supplies no thorough solution to the problem of evil. That is, whether in the form of suffering or sin. Consequently, although there are references to sin and suffering on every page, its main concern is not to explain their origin, but to help us overcome them. So basically, that question is too big for us and the Bible doesn't speak directly to it, and especially Psalm 22, which we're going to look into. You know, Job persisted in getting an answer to, you know, all the calamity that came upon him. And uh, he had his friends helping him, and, and um, God never told him. Instead, God gave him a lesson on his greatness, his grandeur, and his magnificence. And this didn't answer Job's question, but it took away his need to resolve it. And I think we just need to get to a place where you know we're not gonna have every question answered by God. Tim Keller says, if, if God were small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshiped. So there's just some things we're not gonna understand, but there's things that we are gonna understand. And Because he's, he's given us his word and he's revealed things. And um, we are, we are going to get all we can from that. So we're going to find some things in Psalm 22 that are going to help us in this area. So I'm going to ask Preston if he would come up and read Psalm 22 for us. Is mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So David is in the midst of a crisis here. It's pretty obvious. It's believed this is about the time when David was anointed king um, as a young man, and the previous king, Saul, was after him and wanted to kill him, basically. And he would, David would, was friends with Saul's son, Jonathan, and Saul would kind of manipulate Jonathan so he could trap David. And it was basically, David had to run for his life. He had to hide in a cave at one point, Um, people were out to kill him. So, needless to say, it was a pretty serious crisis. So, in this psalm I see three things. I I see David crying out in the midst of crisis and suffering. I see evangelism as the response to God's grace. And there's a portion in there that points us to the crucified Messiah. Now these three points are almost like unrelated, but I hope I can tie them together because I believe to do justice to the psalm, there's a a reason why all this is in there. So the first point is crying out to God in the midst of crisis and suffering. David, as you might, uh, oh, hey, great, we got the slides. you might recognize the first verse of that psalm my god my god why have you forsaken me and we're going i'm going to get back to that but david is really praying what he feels he you know he isn't forsaken he can't be forsaken david actually is the one that wrote psalm 23 which says though i go through the valley of the shadow of death i fear no evil for thou art with me and he also wrote psalm 139 where it says it's so the one where it says if I ascend to the heights, you know, you'll be there. Where can I go from your presence? And so, but, but this is what he felt. And he was just pouring his heart out to the Lord. He was in the middle of a crisis. And, and that's okay. That's, that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to pour our hearts out to Him. Uh, Tim Keller, again. God is very patient with us when we are desperate. Pour your soul out to Him. Uh, second point under this is cry out to God persistently verse 2 it says oh my God I cry by day and you do not answer and by night I find no rest David is I don't think he's describing just one night he prayed and God didn't answer I, I believe this is more of a pattern he went through a period where God was just not answering God was silent And I know some of you that's what it seems like God is just silent And I I want to tell you, He's maybe silent, but He's never absent. And the fact that you are struggling with God's silence, it just means that deep down, yeah, you do know He's there. You do know He exists. So just be encouraged with that and be encouraged with the fact that David is experiencing the same thing. And then last point under this is cry out to God with faith by reminding yourselves of God's faithfulness see what David does here, he reminds himself in verse three, four, and five, yet you are holy and enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted in you and you delivered them. See, he's reminding himself of past faithful acts of God. And then in verse nine and 10, he gets even personal. You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you as I cast from birth and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. So he's affirming that he is God's and God is his, that he's God's child, and just making it personal. If you're going through a hard, silent time like that, it's good to just review your testimony. Go back to the time where you gave your life to Jesus and just appreciate the uh, the connection you had with God the love the passion um, it reminds us that God is a person and he's not a doctrine so that's all under point 1 cry out to God in the midst of suffering and crisis now point 2 is evangelism in response to God's grace I'm just there's just a short portion in here but I really want to do with justice David finally gets an answer in the uh, end of verse 21 it says, You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So he gets an answer. And immediately in verse 22, it's the, it's the whole last third of the psalm is, um, well, verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. All the offsprings of Jacob glorify you. And then he finishes that with some things that he hopes happen that the uh, the families of the nations will worship you and it should be told to the coming generations as francis pointed out and that they shall proclaim this to those yet unborn so in response to god's grace david is basically evangelizing it's it's a natural it's a natural response david understood his missional role and that's What the church has we have a missional role to declare god's goodness to those who don't know about it now the last point is it points us to the crucified messiah so right in the middle of this psalm there's these verses that sound very familiar verse 16 for dogs encompass me a company of evildoers encircles me they have pierced my hands and feet I count all my bones they stare and they gloat over me they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. It's describing a crucifixion which didn't exist at that time. This is a thousand years before the Assyrians and the Romans started doing crucifixions but this is a a, it's a prophetic verses that just pop in there they don't almost don't even have anything to do with the rest of the psalm. But I think David, um, the psalm is pointing us to the crucified Messiah. And then the crucified Messiah, when, when, he, when he quotes Psalm 22 from the cross, points us back to this psalm. And there's a, there's a reason for that. Because we think, okay, what does, you know, how is this going to help me as I go through crisis and suffering? So I just have three points under how the, fixing our gaze on the crucified Messiah will help us through crisis and suffering. The first one is because he was forsaken, we will never be forsaken. Now, this was a real forsakenness. Um, David, he thought he was forsaken, but he really wasn't. But this is a real forsakenness. John Stott says this, so that an actual and dreadful separation took place between the Father and the Son. It was voluntarily accepted by both Father and Son. It was due to our sin and their just reward, and Jesus accepted this horror of great darkness, this God-forsakenness, by quoting the only verse of Scripture that accurately described it and which he had perfectly fulfilled. Namely, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" So, when you're going through a trial, a a crisis, just remember, you will never be forsaken by God. Number two, the crucified Messiah is an example of patient endurance. Jesus is our example and companion in suffering. Hebrews 4.15 says, "'For we do not have a high priest, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all ways like we, yet without sin. So Jesus went through everything we will ever go through. And then last point, God promises a good purpose in our suffering. Pain and suffering shape us. And if we embrace God through our suffering, He will change us and make us more like His Son. Um, you know the verse in Romans 8:28 and 29, but, you know, I don't want to just throw verses at you, but that verse says, God works everything for the good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And verse 29 says, for those He predestine these He... Um, oh, help me out. Um, anyway, to become conformed to the image of His Son. So... Anything that happens, God can work it for the good to conform us to the image of His Son. And it is even said of Jesus that He learned obedience through the things He suffered. If any of you are still affected by a painful experience or crisis, or are going through one now, and it's really holding you back and pulling you down, please consider these points you will never be forsaken, that Jesus is your example and companion in suffering, and that He will work it for good. Because suffering changes us, whether we like it or not. We go through a crisis, it's going to change you, whether you like it or not, one way or the other. But if we embrace Jesus as we go through it, it will bring good in our lives. I just want to end with an update on my brother. He didn't allow what he didn't know to undermine what he did know. You can imagine going through those three crises as a Christian and having questions, confusion. Now, he always knew God was his father, he always knew God was with him. He's thankful that God spared his life. I mean, that. Situation on the, on the shore, there's several miraculous things that happened to save his life. I mean, the bone fracture just damaged the, the dura, the membrane around his brain. If it, if it went another quarter inch, it would have punctured his brain. The fact that there was a doctor on the shore. The fact that he didn't break his neck. Um, so he's thankful that God spared his life. He's not plagued with questions about why these things happened to him. He understands bad things happen that he might never know the answer why, and he's good with that. He knows that pain and suffering changes a person, but if you choose to allow Jesus to walk through your pain, healing begins. He still grieves the loss of his wife and his son, and he confesses that on a human level he's lonely. So, not every problem gets solved the way we think and sometimes we are just called to walk through a hardship there's no solution to losing a son there's no way that could be brought back but god is meeting him god is sustaining him as he walks through that and he's still pastoring and proclaiming the gospel and his faith is as strong as ever due to jesus and due to him walking with jesus so again, I just want to make a, a small plea that I know there's people here that are suffering, have suffered, or you, you will suffer. And that if you choose to walk through God, bring Jesus through your suffering, and it will make all the difference. If you are here and you're visiting, you're checking out Christianity, I hope that you've seen a. a a side of God that is appealing to you? And if so, you know, myself, Eric, we'd be glad to talk to you afterwards. So thank you very much. Hey, thank you for listening. Monument is a growing church pointing people to Jesus and planting churches in the greater DC area. For more sermons or information, please hop on to www.monumentchurchdc.com.